take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to look together at verses 19 through 24. As you're finding your way there, I'll kind of give you the update on your pastor. I am glad to be back with you this morning. I've been out for the last two Sundays, as you have probably all heard, at least most of you have heard by now, out on COVID quarantine or isolation. Two Sundays ago was Disciple Now week, and uh, so my message to the staff that morning was, hey, I, I feel such that if I were preaching, I'd be there. I don't feel bad enough to not be there and preaching, but giving, given the fact that I'm not preaching, it doesn't make sense to run the risk. Am I hot? Is my mic hot? You don't hear me? doesn't make sense to be there and risk exposing people if I'm not preaching. So I stayed home and then Monday really felt good enough to be back at work. And then I thought, well, with quick turnaround, I really don't need to run the risk of exposing a bunch of people without going and get tested. And so I did and was positive. And so was then at home uh, for the 10 days of prescribed isolation, which is not my thing at all. I'm not big on isolation. I'm not big on not doing much, but that was kind of the experience that we had there at the house. No one else in the family sick. Brandy's had both of the vaccine shots now, and uh, neither of the big boys slowed down at all, and the littlest among us uh, probably picked it up a notch or two, so I'm doubtful that any of them, they, at a minimum, they didn't have any symptoms if they had anything, and we're all back and healthy and whole. The short of the long is, I am alive and glad to be back in the pulpit and with you this morning and anxious to be able to look at this passage together. I wouldn't necessarily call the passage that we're going to look at my favorite passage. I know pastors are given a hyperbole with regards to their favorite passage. Every week's passage is the pastor's favorite passage, right? But when it comes to looking at a passage consistently, a text that I find myself going back to again and again and again, this is one that I have probably cited more in personal counseling sessions than, than any other passage. And I hope that you'll give an ear to what Jesus says in these verses and that you will uh, individually investigate uh, ways that this passage and the principles that it holds forth are applicable in your personal life. Jesus is dealing here with matters regarding personal finances and material possessions, but the principles, the application of these principles are wide-ranging and far-reaching. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. If you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 6, verse number 19. Jesus says, Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and money. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. From the very beginning of our series in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been pressing really three ideas. True in every paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount, in every verse. 
Jesus has made us radically different people than we were before by the power of the gospel. We have become citizens of a kingdom that is radically different than the kingdoms of this world. And the product of that change in us, the product of this new kingdom citizenship, is that we now see the world, we regard the world, our outlook, our worldview is now much different than the worldview experienced by those around us. Jesus gives us here in these verses a kingdom perspective, a kingdom worldview with regards to possessions, and personal finances. He begins in verse 19 noting that we ought not store up for ourselves treasures on earth here where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break into steel, but in heaven where there is no rust and there are no moths and there are no thieves. Rather than our focus being on the here and now, our focus is to be heavenly or eternal. We have not a temporary perspective, but an eternal perspective. And I see that about half of you have now found the bird. The bird terrorized us in the 930 service. And I was hopeful that the bird would remain hidden. He's out there about halfway deep on this side if you're panicking. He's only a small bird. And he was supposed to show up next week when Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or store up in barns. And yet God provides for their needs. But the bird is a week early. Try not to be overly distracted by the bird this morning as we manage the text at hand, right? So Jesus says our perspective is not to be earthly but eternal, not temporary but forever. When we really begin to see and understand the, the vast difference between this little sliver of life that we enjoy in the here and now and what awaits us in eternity through Christ Jesus, it really begins to change our outlook, our perspective is much, much different. The first principle, really, I think that Jesus is putting forth in our passage in verses 19 and 20 is this. The focus of kingdom people, kingdom citizens, prioritize the spiritual over the material. In other words, our focus, our goals are, are not earthly. They are spiritual. Now, what makes this difficult, the real, I told you the bird tormented the 930 service. Y'all hang in there with me as much as you can. Tracy was just attacked by the bird for those of you who missed out on that. I'm taking this to be an indication that the devil has a real interest in disrupting this service. So God must have great things in store for us. Hang in as best you possibly can. The, the charge is that our concern is, is not financial or material, but spiritual. Let me tell you what makes this somewhat difficult for us. We have spiritual uh, obligations or responsibilities that deal with the financial or the material parts of our life. So as a dad, for instance, I have a, a spiritual responsibility to provide for the material or financial needs of my wife and my children. And the Bible says that for the husband or the father who fails to meet that obligation, he is worse than an infidel or an unbeliever, right? So, so here we're dealing with our responsibilities financially and materially, but there's a, there are real spiritual consequences or spiritual implications to our uh, need to meet those, uh, or to our responsibility to meet those needs, right? Right? 
So the trouble is, the trick is that, that my, my heart will always drift away from understanding the spiritual implications of those material and financial responsibilities toward the want for comfort and affluence and various other creaturely things that bring me some degree of, of satisfaction, right? That's the drift for us. No one drifts toward godliness. We always drift in the direction of sin. So there's real intentionality that we have to take hold of and to employ in our life to stay away from these danger spots, right? I, I'm at our house, I'm, I'm the saver. Brandy's the spender and I'm the saver. Now she's not in this service, but if she were, she would not argue with that. She would wholeheartedly agree. Now the woman can work wonders. If she has $5 to make it work for us that month, she can make it work. But if she has $5,000 to make it work that month, there won't be anything left when it's all over. She's the spender and I'm the saver. Now, saving is a good thing, right? We ought to have some saving goals. There ought to be some sort of milestones that we're establishing for ourselves to make sure that we're provided for in the latter part of our life. I think of that as sort of digging wells, preparing for what's coming down the road, pro providing for us the ability to be open-handed and generous, perhaps even active in ministry in ways that we otherwise would not have been able to be. But for me, my mind will drift in the direction of getting things that I want or living with a level of comfort and affluence that really aren't predicated on any spiritual responsibility that Jesus has given me in the Scripture, on, on any moral obligation that I enjoy as a father or as a husband. will always drift in that dangerous direction. So this is not a, a warning against or a prohibition against setting certain financial goals. But it is a prohibition against setting financial goals that are an end in themselves. Like you should be setting aside something for the latter part of your life in retirement or however you want to think in those terms. But you need to be preparing yourself for the latter part, or latter part of your life when you're no longer able to work as you're able to work at the present hour. But the purpose for that is so that in the latter part of our life, we're able to continue to invest ourselves in missions and in ministry in ways that are about the advancement of his kingdom across the street and around the world, not so that we can retire to Key West and throw seashells in the sea for the rest of the life that God has given us, right? There's always a spiritual purpose to the financial goals, even the goals that we set for attaining certain material things. It's always a comfort to me. It's, it's refreshing for me to hear of people within our church body who are in the process of, of building a home or buying a new home, and they're thinking in terms of living space so that they're able to host connect groups and minister groups and share in fellowship within the context of their home. The spiritual purpose is where we find that delicate point of balance, even in the financial and material goals that we might set for ourselves. The focus of kingdom people is spiritual and not material. Number two, Verse 21 really holds for us what I think is the key principle in these verses. Here Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the principle. Your heart will invariably follow after the investment of your treasure. Whatever you're investing in, your heart will follow after that investment. Now, 
uh, for, the, for the most part, most folks in our area don't do a whole lot of individual investment like a single stock type investment. For most of us, our retirement funds are bound up in some type of fund and we're not really entirely sure about how all that's put together. We just hope that it does well before we are no longer able to function as adults, right? But let's say for a moment you are invested in a single uh, company, single corporation. There's one company, you've picked out company A, and that's where you're going to make your financial investment. You're going to be keenly interested in the well-being of that company for all of your days. You want to see them do well because when they do well, that means you do well. You're going to be looking for them on the ticker as the morning news plays before work. You're going to be tuning in to the 6 o'clock news to see how they did in business on that given day. Your heart, your attention, your affections are going to follow after that financial investment. But this is also true in a number of other areas in life. We've become accustomed to, at least aware of, this phenomenon in our culture, in our society where moms and dads who have so deeply invested in their children over the first 18 or 20 years of their life that there comes a point in time when the youngest child moves away and mom and dad are looking at, themse- looking at one another and realizing that they've become strangers in their own house because their investment has been exclusively in that of their children over the past 20 years and not in their relationship and they've done it to their own detriment. Even with regards to family, this concept, this principle is true. What you are invested in, your affections will be set upon. I cannot tell you the number of times I've cited this passage in marriage counseling. When a husband and wife comes in and they say, the fire, the passion, the love that was once there is just not there anymore. Maybe she says, I just don't like him anymore. Maybe he says, I just don't like her anymore. And I'm able to say to them, without exception, that your heart will follow your investment. The investment of your time and your talent and your treasure, your heart will follow after. Begin to labor to love him or her. Invest your time and your treasure and your heart will follow soon after. This is a principle that has far-reaching, wide-ranging application and I would encourage you to investigate the many ways that this has bearing in your life. This is really a big, big, important principle. We'll return to that in the close of our passage. I think if there's a, a part of the text that people sort of get tripped up on in terms of understanding, it's in verses 22 and 23. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says here, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Here Jesus is illustrating how central these principles really are. How important, how central to our life finances and material possessions really are. Our perspective on them. How how great an influence that outlook has on every area of our life. And he uses the eye to illustrate this point. In the same way that the heart is the seat of our affections, and from a biblical perspective, the heart is the seat of our affections and our intellect. The heart is where wisdom and intellect are employed. It's not just the way we feel about things. It's even more than that. The biblical concept of the heart 
really in some ways combines both heart and mind as we think of it in our Western way of thinking. The heart is the seat of our affections. It's the seat of our intellect and the biblical framework. In the same way, the eye is central to who we are as people. I have really bad eyes. If, if, if you don't know me very well, you may not know that, but my eyes are like really, really, really bad. If I don't have corrective lenses in, I, I, can't, I wouldn't know that you were out there. My vision is that bad. If you walked up to me, I don't have corrective lenses in, and you talk to me. If I don't recognize your voice, I, don't, I wouldn't know who you are. I certainly wouldn't know that there's a bird flying around the worship center this morning without corrective lenses. I've been in trouble with my optometrist for all of my adult life because I sleep in contact lenses, and you're really not supposed to do that. But if I don't sleep in contact lenses and something happens in the night that requires my attention, I am defenseless. There would be nothing I could do to protect myself or anyone else in the house, not to mention it would be incredibly difficult to find the kitchen or the bathroom. So I wear them all the time. It, it's, it's a frustrating thing to not be able to see clearly what should clearly be before you. Jesus says when the eye is good, it gives light to the whole body. In other words, it enables all kinds of activities. But when the eye is unhealthy, it limits the body. The whole body is limited by this single limitation. When the eye is bad, the whole body is full of darkness, Jesus says. Now, if this, if this part of the body that's intended to function for your good is now functioning to your detriment, how deep is the darkness? In other words, if your heart intended to function for good has this gravitational pull toward stuff, toward possessions, how deep is our depravity? We, we are broken. We are inclined toward a darkness that is difficult even to comprehend. What Jesus is illustrating is how this area of our life, personal finances and material possessions, touches every part of our life the way we see our stuff has an impact on how we regard virtually everything else. And this is reflected in Jesus' ministry. 348 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus speaks to money or to personal finances. In a, in, in a number of biblical texts, often at the heart of Jesus' parables, is this idea of how we regard our finances. This becomes the metric, the gauge for so many parts of our life. And we really need to take a sobering and honest assessment of self with regards to the way we see and the way we handle our finances. The Apostle Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6 and 10 that it's the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Jesus is not here dealing with personal finances because he has a strong desire to pick your pocket or to get what you have. By the way, he owns it all. The cattle on a thousand hill and the cash in your pocket. It all belongs to him. Nor do we have as a church a keen interest in getting what is yours. Jesus deals with this issue because it has tentacles into every part of your life. Jesus is no health and prosperity gospel preacher. He even observes of his own ministry. The birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus divest himself of great wealth for our benefit. He became poor that we might know the riches of his grace through the power of the gospel. This is just an area that touches every part of our life. 
Now, the tendency is to think that these uh, cautions, these warnings against prosperity and affluence are for people of a certain tax bracket. But I've, I've sort of been on both sides of that thing. And in my experience, it's often those who have the least that are the most fixated on attaining a certain degree of material wealth or certain possessions. None of us are exempt from this word of warning. This is an experience that is common to mankind. We are inclined toward idolatry. We are inclined toward the sinful pursuit of stuff that we convince ourselves will bring us satisfaction when that can only be found in its fullness through the finished work of Jesus Christ. A heart fixed on material things will affect every part of your life. There's a fourth principle in verse 24. Second only to the one in verse 21 where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 24 is another principle here with far-reaching and wide-ranging application. Jesus says here, no one can be a slave of two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and money. I would add you cannot be slaves of God and anything else. The far-reaching and, and broad application piece of this principle comes in at the point at which we have to acknowledge that virtually everything that we set our hand to do in the here and now has the potential to become master of our life. The idea of love and hate in most biblical contexts is about choosing one and not choosing the other. You can't serve both God and money, be a slave to both God and money because both tend toward mastery. Both want to be the Lord over your life. God demands the undivided allegiance of his people. And believe it or not, there is this inanimate longing on the part of your possessions. Your bank account seeks to have your heart. Your stuff, your hobbies, your interests, things that can be good are at work effectively in your life to your detriment, to your destruction, to your demise. I was thinking this morning about application of this passage. Virtually everything that I really enjoy doing has a tendency toward mastery in my life. I love college sports. I have a favorite team. I won't make the mistake of identifying who that favorite team, team is or that favorite university is publicly for fear of alienating half of the people here, but I have a favorite team. I have a favorite university, and their teams are all my favorite teams, especially when it comes to football. I love to watch them play. Baseball is a close second, but anything that we're playing well in, because that is such a rarity, usually garners my attention, right? And the worst thing in the world that can happen to my devotion, to my allegiance, is for us to be good in some area, right? When, especially when it comes to college football. I know what you do. All you men look spiritual if you want to. But if your team is good, your first inclination on Sunday morning is to see where your team is in the top 25, even before you think about the Lord's Day and the worship of Jesus Christ. Maybe an indication that God loves Mississippi more than Alabama. I don't know about all that. You're looking to see about the success. What is there to celebrate here in these earthly things even before thinking about what the Lord might be up to in your life? I love to, I love to hunt turkeys. 
there are few things in this world that I enjoy any more than that. It's a good thing. It's an opportunity to see the handiwork of God in creation, how the heavens and the earth are telling the glory of God. But I'm telling you, it will tend toward mastery in my life. One of the best things that happened to me in the last two years is to move away from a place where I had hunting rights on virtually every piece of property in two counties. Because it tended toward mastery in my life. I had to stop doing the, the game cameras about 10 years ago. Let me tell you what they're good for. You lose a whole lot of sleep and you'll get your heart broken year after year after year. Because that hobby will tend toward mastery in your life. And your finances function the same way. You convince yourself that if I can just get to right here, I can put this out of my mind, and I can move on to thinking about other things, and then you get here. And the decision is made that now if I can only get to here, everything will be copacetic for me, everything will be wonderful. And then you get to there, and you think, if I can only get to here, because your money desires to have mastery over your life. It wishes to be your Lord. Now again, that is not to say that these are bad things. Finances are good. If you've ever been without them, you would acknowledge that finances are good. Material things, possessions, can be a good thing. The problem is in our heart and our tendency toward idolatry that prevents us from seeing these things as we should truly see them. We have to be cautious. We have to be careful. I had a college student came up after the first service and said, Brother, what about time? Yes, this is true of time. And there are all kinds of complicating factors where you invest your time, your heart will follow after. Now, the tricky thing about that season of life is that you're digging wells to draw from for the rest of your days. So sometimes you just got to bow up and acknowledge that the overwhelming majority of your time is going to be invested in education, perhaps even establishing a financial base to build a family and a marriage on. You just have to sort of deal with it in that season of life, recognizing that that time is well spent because you're going to be drawing from the wells that you've dug during that season for the next 50 years of your life. There's always a point of balance that has to be struck. But in every case, the priority is freeing ourselves up, operating in such a way that we're able to be open-handed, that we're able to focus, to concentrate our efforts on kingdom-advancing causes, that our interest, our concern, is not about building better barns or better houses or a better bottom line, but doing something that matters beyond the span of this 80 or 90 years that God might be pleased to give us in the here and now. That must be the focus for kingdom people. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Now, this is a passage that you're probably familiar with, right? You've heard these concepts. Many of you have heard these concepts, or at least you're familiar with this passage. So it may not have the effect of stunning you the way perhaps Jesus intends it to. But what he has described here is I know you use the word radically in this series a lot. That's by design. This is radically different from the way the world around us regards finances, especially in America. Like we, we identify times of good and times of bad by the economic circumstances associated with, with that season. Like if I say to you 2008, immediately your first thought is, I don't, need, I don't have to say anything else. You just go economic recession. If, if, I, if I say to you, in some circles, if I were to even say the 90s, like tech boom, right? Internet, all those sorts of things. But surely if I say in any setting, 
Great Depression. Everyone knows. We, we think of that as, as the darkest time in the history of our country, right? Some of you can put that ahead of like a civil war in which thousands upon thousands of people died. We equate in some backwards kind of way prosperity with God's blessedness on our life and on our nation. And, and, and we equate bad times, lean times, with the removal of God's hand of blessing or difficult or dark times in our history. And the strange thing is that it seems to be just the opposite of what God's, how God sees reality. I've, I've had the privilege of being close with a handful of people who lived through the Depression and, and were the finest people that I've ever known, refined by that season in our nation's history. Now, I'm a child of the 80s, and there's a bunch of children of the 90s around here, and I'd trade us all for some children of the Great Depression, right? We see things in a way that, that is the converse of what Jesus is describing in this passage. And if you really think about it in terms of how our society sees things, it, we're so upside down and, and it doesn't make sense. It's a strange thing that we would not be interested in these sorts of material or earthly things. There's only one thing that really makes this all make sense. Why would we live without concern for our financial or material well-being? Obviously, we don't mean exclusively without concern, but with this level of balance, why would we be interested as Jesus has described? The resurrection of Jesus is what makes it all make sense. When you come to terms with the reality that our life is here today and gone tomorrow, that this life is but a vapor, it is a wisp of smoke, that this little 80-year time that God has given us here is teensy, tiny in comparison to the eternity that waits us, awaits us in Christ Jesus, it really begins to make sense of what Jesus says. Not only does it become a reasonable thing that we would give ourselves away in the here and now, that our investment might be made in the there and then, it becomes a common sense thing. That we would invest where neither moth nor rust can destroy, where thieves cannot break in to steal. That we wouldn't concern ourselves with the here and now where moth and rust indeed destroy and where thieves are constantly breaking in to steal. We want to do something with the life that God has given us that makes an eternal difference. We want to be a part of kingdom advancing works. We want to walk in such a way that we hear from our Father, well done, thy good and faithful servant. We want to do with what God has entrusted to us something that makes a real difference beyond the span of our natural life. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we truly desire? And what Jesus seems to be indicating is that the absence of that compelling desire, I don't mean just giving assent to that desire, that that's a good and noble thing, but that the absence of that longing in our heart to do something with what God has entrusted to us that makes an eternal difference, the absence of that longing becomes the gauge by which we measure our walk with Jesus. It becomes a way of our evaluating ourselves against the standard that God has established for us. Again, this matter of personal finances has tentacles into every area of our life. You remember a, a couple of weeks back, a few weeks back now, we were looking at prayer. And we talked about how we, we, we really like to say, and I hear this often, like, I, I'm, I'm really devoted to my Bible reading time. There's certain areas of my walk where I do really well, but I'm, I'm not really good in the department of prayer. 
And how we noted there that it, it seemed that what Jesus was, was teaching, there's at least a strong indication in that text, and if not there, in countless other texts, that you really can't have a good Christian walk, a good devotional life in any area if your prayer life is not healthy. It's almost as if Jesus is giving the same sort of indication with regards to personal finance. It simply does not make sense. There's something that doesn't add up about the experience of one who says, I'm going to trust Jesus with my eternal soul, but I will not trust Jesus with my material goods or personal finances. Let me tell you something. If Jesus can manage your eternal salvation, he can manage your personal finances. And maybe this morning would be a good morning, a milestone moment when you stop wringing your hands over what you're going to do or how you're going to manage and simply entrust your well-being to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for the privilege of being together here this morning. God, I, I pray that the truths of this text have landed well in the hearts of your people. God, that you would use this word to shape and sanctify and refine us, God, to make us to be who you'd have us to be. Help us, Lord, to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. God, I pray that you would be at work among us in these next moments. God, that you would sanctify your church, God, that you would call us away from sin, that, that you would convict us of idolatry and where we're drifting from keeping the main thing the main thing. God, I pray for those who don't know you. God, I pray for the lost sheep that you would, by the power of your Spirit, call their name, that they would hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and come, God, and come. I pray that you would save them. God, help them to see that there is eternal life and abundant joy in Jesus Christ. God, help us to see the world as you see it. Help us to be mindful, Lord, that our citizenship is not here but in heaven. And help us to live like we know that's the truth. God, I, I pray that we would find our fulfillment, our joy, our satisfaction in you and in you alone. God, I, I pray that you would grant a firm conviction that what you have afforded us in the gospel, that your presence in our life is a far greater treasure than the sum total of all the world's wealth could ever provide for us. God, I pray that, that we would look away from the things of this world and unto you for joy everlasting. God, convict our hearts in this area. Find us faithful. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.